listeners, this is Wayne. The following is a recording of Keith Paker's panel in October 2018. Unfortunately, the beginning of the panel was recorded in the main hall and is unusable. However, we now join the talk already in progress. You know, a few things that sort of were out at the time were things like the setting of Shadowrun, which is a modern or sort of cyberpunky uh, setting where magic comes back into the world. Uh, there's an old computer game called Arcanum that was more of a sort of steampunky with magic sort of thing. And these are sort of examples, but a lot of the things that sort of explore that really present technology and magic in opposition. You know, it's these two things are here and they're clashing. And what we wanted to do with Eberron was to say, let's imagine a world in which magic is treated like technology. You know, that it's just we use it to solve the problems we solve with technology. It's not that there's magic and technology. It's magic used in a scientific fashion. You know, I am actually personally not that familiar with it, but one example I know people have talked about is Full Metal Alchemist uh, is one thing to look to, and I'll think of some others as I go. You know, there's certainly a lot of, you know, there are things out there that have explored this kind of concept. And certainly in terms of just looking to pulp adventure or uh, sort of noir adventure, you know, there's lots of things out there that you can sort of look to. Pulp, it's any sort of high adventure over the top, and we're just sort of looking for, for things, you know. Part of what we're looking for with Pulp is that whole living on the edge, pushing the odds, you know, uh, what I was saying is, it's not just that you're on an airship, it's that the airship is on fire and it's about to crash. You know, how can you sort of ratchet up the, uh, the tension or the drama of the scene? And conversely, when you get into the noir, it's the question again of how can we make the decisions more interesting for the player? You know, it's the question of, okay, we've found the evil wizard, but it turns out that he's the only thing that's actually keeping the goblins from invading this area. And so if you kill him, even though he's clearly the bad guy here, you're also going to be causing this other problem. You know, and sort of having things like that that make it less simple than just a clear cut, oh, this guy's bad, so we should kill him. Or situations where, again, evil people could be doing things, or vice versa. That you have, uh, you know, a crusade that is clearly being fought with the best of intentions, but is going to harm a lot of innocent people. And so part of that with uh, Eberron, again, just in my moment, I'm blanking on, no, let me point to that example of that's a thing. And if you think of anything that you're like, oh, this inspired me, please, uh, you know, call it out. But even looking to something like Game of Thrones is an example where it's just sort of saying motivations can both be human in the sense of people can be greedy or hungry for power or not consider the ramifications of their actions. But also, as I said, the main thing to me is wanting people to, to think about their choices and, you know, have interesting consequences for actions. I will also point out, so then going to world building, one of the things I try and do with world building is to, I don't like settings to be just a, this is clearly Earth, but we've changed the names. Uh, if you're going to do that, just set your game in Earth. There's nothing wrong with alternate histories and things like that. At the same time, when you're making a fantasy world, what is important to me is to have touchstones that people can sort of connect to, that they can understand, that feel familiar. So in the case of Eberron, 
we have the last war, this big civil war that has sort of ripped apart uh, the previous sort of united order. That war came to an end with an event called the Morning, uh, this cataclysm that completely destroyed a nation, and which is essentially a nuclear event, except that nobody knows who or what caused it. And so to both of those, it's the concept, we understand the impact of a world war and of war in general. And, you know, looking to things like one of the big impacts is because of the morning we have a rush of refugees from uh, the nation of Sire and that, um, that again, we understand the impact of refugees. You know, these are things, and either from the perspective of what do you do if it was you and your nation was destroyed and you have no home and now what are you doing versus the, and what do you do if you're in Greyland and we're now getting flooded with uh, Syrian refugees and you obviously don't want to be inhumane, but what problems is this causing? And meanwhile, looking to the morning itself, it carries a lot of the same implications to the world as the development of nuclear weapons in our world, you know, it's completely changed the face of, you know, we're not sure we can continue to fight because we're worried about complete devastation. But with the twist that we don't know the cause, we don't know, is this a weapon? And if so, is someone building another one? Is this just the natural consequence of too much war magic, that we are throwing around so much magic in the war that, you know, if we kept fighting, this would happen again? And like I said, it's unique to the world, but we still know what the threat of nuclear annihilation feels like. And we can understand these people now sitting on this, we're suddenly not knowing, could the world end tomorrow? You know, this has completely changed the sort of balance of power in the world. One of the, one of the twists on that is also the idea that within the setting, we don't tell you what the answer to that question is, what did cause the morning. And part of the reason we don't is so, A, you as the game master can make that decision. That's mysterious. Uh, you know, so part of it is that you can make the decision, but also because it's almost less about what did cause it and more about the impact that it has on the world. Another aspect to it is that we have what are called the Dragonmarked Houses. There are basically 12 powerful guilds who carry magical marks that grant them mystical power and that have allowed them to control uh, various elements of the magical economy. So the House of Making you know, controls the creation of magic items, the creation of the Warforged, you have Jurasco, the sort of house of healing that runs the medical industry. And part of the point there is these are things we sort of understand in the role of sort of multinational corporations. And that part of what we're exploring again is especially in the wake of the war, which broke the powerful United Kingdom that existed before, the balance of power between the houses and the nations has split. So we're saying, does the traditional feudal monarchy that sort of fits the classic fantasy we're familiar with actually sort of really work in this evolving world. And at this point, are the individual nations actually powerful enough to enforce their will on these multinational guilds whose services they rely upon? And again, you don't have to deal with that, but that's a point of, we understand these things, like these are things in our world that we're starting to say, 
what happens when Google, you know, gets into a fight with a nation. And so it's that point of taking fantasy as we know it. This is a world with wizards and dragons and goblins and still saying, but what happens when we deal with the potential of mass destruction, of uh, power-hungry corporations, uh, of things like that, that lets us sort of explore stories that we wouldn't normally explore. Uh, another thing that went into the world building is, you know, a big thing when you're building a world is a question on how do you approach religion and divine forces. You know, within D&D, we have clerics. You know, we have people who can channel power of the gods. And one of the questions is, but, but what is that? How does it work? In a setting like Forgotten Realms, in the sort of what was generally at the time the default to Dungeons & Dragons, gods are coherent, defined entities that you can go and meet. You can go and have lunch with Thor, and if you don't like him, you can punch him in the nose. And part of the thing about that is that's a very different experience. You know, it ties to sacred mythology, but it's a very different experience of religion than we have in our world today. And it pulls out any concept of a requirement for faith or of any mystery. The gods, it's not like, I don't know if the gods exist. He exists. He's right over there. It is a question then of which God do I support? And so it becomes, to my mind, more like professional sports. It's not that I question, do uh, the you know Denver Broncos exist? I know they exist. It's, do I like them? And I wanted to get back to something that deals more with what we have in our world, where religion is a matter of faith, where someone believes in a thing, but they can't prove it to you, and they don't feel a need to prove it to you. Uh, and where you could say, well, how do I know a cleric just isn't a sorcerer who, you know, is casting magic in a different way? Maybe they are. So again, it's back to that. What that lets us do is tell stories that don't work in a world where the gods absolutely exist because we can have heresy, we can have schisms, we can have crusades fought for terrible reasons because in the case of heresy, Thor's never going to come down and clear it up for you. You know, we can't actually, we can have two people who say completely different things, and there is no absolute final authority to be the answer on it. That ties back to the noir element of that idea that this is a world where, again, we don't have that absolute immortal uh, sort of ruling on good and evil. So that lets us have more uncertainty. Um, so that was me going, bleh. Uh, for a bit. Uh, from all of that, have any uh, any other questions? I'm going to restate this for the phone in case they didn't hear. You know, so the question is, if you're dealing with people who are familiar with very classic, you know, traditional high fantasy, how do you bring them into Eberron? Uh, and so, you know, it makes sense to them and such when it's a different and more complex world. There's a couple different things you can do. One of the things to me is when you start, you know, sitting down with people coming up with characters, you know, I certainly like to have a session zero where we come up with characters together. Part of the question is if you give the characters an inherent connection. Like, are you just saying you're a bunch of strangers who meet in a bar? Or do you start by saying, all right, there was this terrible war, you all fought in it together. You know, basically you fought for the nation of Syria and your nation was destroyed, but let's talk about that. Who were you? What was your role? Why did you fight? You know, 
And that helps at the start of saying, first off, don't just tell the player something. Ask them questions. You know, basically say, why would you have fought in a war? What would you have fought for? And then you can build on that. If they say, well, I would have done such and such, you can say, oh, that kind of matches to this thing. But basically, if you're just dumping more on someone, it's easy for it to feel overwhelming or to bypass it. Whereas the more you can explain something to them, if you look to the way, you know, this is actually, I'm completely switching topics here, but it ties to it. If you look in the Wayfinder's Guide, we have that section of starting points. And there's basically three different starting points in Sharn. And part of the idea of those is to say, let's start by saying if a role-playing game is like a movie or novel, let's start by making sure we're all on the same page of what kind of movie this is. Is this heroic adventure where you're bold adventurers who are going to be hired to go find treasures in lost ruins? Is this a gritty, you're down and out in one of the worst parts of town just trying, struggling to survive and to make a couple coppers. You know, is it, we're students at a university that, you know, teaches magical stuff. And if you get the players to agree on that concept, then what each of the starting points does is then take a step further and say, and what kind of characters would be a part of this? If you're a professional adventurer, how'd you get into that, you know? One of the questions I always call out is in Eberron just saying there was a terrible war that really basically involved the entire continent. What role would you have played in that? Would you have fought in it? Which especially if you're something like a fighter, that would make sense. Uh, if you wouldn't have, why not? What were you doing? You're a fighter. You know, uh, why weren't you involved? And that helps people sort of, again, think of my character as I'm not just a fighter, if I am a person with fighting skills, how did I get them? What did I do with them? Why do I have them? You know, so it, it's a way both to have the players think a little more, but also, again, to push it to them. Don't just tell them things. Make them start thinking a little deeper than they did. Does that make any sense? Yes. I will say that one of the adventures I've been running is uh, set in the east of Eberron in a land called Kabara, which is very much like the sort of traditional Wild West of the Old Western. And what I did for them is I said, all right, you're basically on the frontier. This is a mining town searching for these things called dragon shards. You're like a new mining town. You've hit a rich vein and it's just sprung up. I want each of you to tell me your connection to the town. And I'll say right at the start, we need a sheriff. We need a preacher. We could have someone who's, you know, got a connection to the tavern or a connection to the miners. Any of these grab you? you know, basically, so I've said to them, this is a Western. You know Westerns. Tell me who your character is. And so the warlock's like, well, I'm clearly the shady gambler who's rolled into town and, you know, have wand, will travel. And then I helped them on top of that say, oh, well, great. You know, maybe your family's from New Throne, you know, the biggest town here. You know, I sort of helped them flesh it out into the thing. You know, again, taking the sheriff. The guy's like, well, I'm going to be the sheriff. I'm going to say, well, great. Did you fight in the war? He's like, well, maybe I'm a paladin. I'm like, great. You could be a paladin in the Silver Flame. You know, so sort of build it out from there. But again, it starts by taking a concept they are familiar with. Uh, this is Gangs of New York. This is Deadwood. This is, again, Indiana Jones. And, and saying, tell me a character that fits that, and then I'm going to work with you to tie it a little closer to the setting uh, and sort of add those details on as you go. Does that make any sense? Yep. Any other questions? 
Um, on the subject of Sharn, yes. I just took a look at it, and it's a pretty massive mm-hmm. uh, thing to tackle. Yes. Um, how would you run something like a like an area of that scale? Because there's so many districts, and right. how much detail should you tell them? Not much. So this is the thing: is first off, what we try and do in the Wayfinder's Guide is give you a picture, a broad enough picture of Sharn that you can sort of just wing it without knowing all the details. On the DMs Guild, they do have uh, the Sharn City of Towers source book that goes into much more detail. Um, and so if you want to get into the specifics, that is a fantastic source book that is full of ideas and full of stuff. My thing is with my group, it's back again. I basically tell them only what they need to know. So in other words, I'm running a group that's in Kalistan, which is one of the starting points uh, in the Wayfinder's Guide, that's essentially, it's the bad part of town. These are people who are down and out. Some of them have uh, connections to, you know, one guy's the urchin who's like a rat catcher to get by. Another guy is a... Yeah, there you go. Uh, another one is the wizard is basically, well, I used to be born part of the Dragonmark houses, and I found out something so terrible that I'm just gone into hiding as a homeless bum. And is so he's just sort of hiding out down there. And someone else is a courier who sort of has worked her way out of the crappy part of town, but still has a lot of connections there. You know, so so they're all in this bad part of town. And basically, that's the part they know. And I start off by saying, well, let's talk about that a little. You know, part of the point of those starting points is if you look at it, the starting points go into a fair amount of detail and say, let's figure out what's the bar you all hang out at. Here's a couple of bars in this area. Would you be more likely to hang out at the Anvil or would you be more likely to hang out at the Cat Cafe? You know, like, what's your place? And tell me something you think is cool about that. And I'm going to flip this back to the Western game I told you about. One of the things I did there is I sat down with the players and said, there's only one bar in town. It's the Cat and Biscuit. Everybody, tell me one thing about it. And we went around the group. One guy says, it's got great acoustics, and they have an open mic night once a week. Next person says, they brew their beer in the basement. It's great. Next person says, they make the best biscuits in town. Next person says, they don't have a working toilet, and it smells terrible. And everyone else was like, why did you do that? And, uh, and so then we said, well, that's great. In Eberron, you can get what's called a cleansing stone that works like a magic toilet, and that'll just be 200 gold. And so they spend the next three adventures trying to raise enough money to buy a toilet for the bar. Uh, And to me, that's part of that point of the more you let the players sort of help build out the, the place, the more that they feel attached to it. And further, the idea of the starting points is to say, I want you to invest in a piece of shark. You may not get the big picture. You may not understand it all, but you know this little, this is your neighborhood, you know, whether it's Clifftop, whether it's Kalistan. And then beyond there, what I would say to Sharn is Sharn is an enormous city. It's filled with towers that are a mile high. You can sort of think of it like Coruscant or, you know, something like that if people, if that's a reference that makes sense to people. Talk about where they live and say, well, as you know, adventurers in Clifftop, you live on one of the higher towers because you're bold adventurers and, you know, down below you, oh, things are pretty miserable down there, but you're lucky because you're up at the top. Or you're in Kalistan, so, you know, you're down among the, the dirt and grime and, you know, the further down the tower you go, the worse it gets and you're at the bottom. 
And, you know, so sort of make sure they understand the picture. We're in the crappy part of town. It stretches up for a mile, and boy, is it nice up there. But we don't go there. And then add the details as the adventure calls for it. So in the adventure I was running in Kalistan, they basically get a summons, you know, a package delivered to them saying basically bring this to the university district. And at that point, I will say, let me tell you about the university district. This is this entire, you know, district generated to Morgrave University. Get there, you're going to have to go up here and then walk them through the journey. So you go to the great lift. On the lift, we're going to have a little, like, scene with, like, the other people who are on the lift. Uh, you know, and sort of do that. But don't try, especially from the start, don't try and give them the whole scope because part of it is saying you live in New York City, you don't know the whole scope of it. You know your neighborhood and you're going to figure it out as you cross town. So that's my point is make sure they understand this is this amazing city of towers. There's in fact another floating district above it. You know, this is uh, huge and this is the part of it you're in. But add those other details as they go to it. It's also the case that looking to the Wayfinder's Guide, one of the things we do is with the different backgrounds. Fifth edition has backgrounds. You know, you can be an acolyte, you can be a sage. It has a little sort of set of tables of here are things that could bring that kind of character to shine. I wouldn't necessarily personally roll on those, but I might show that table to the player and say, does one of these sound interesting to you? Uh, or do you want to come up with something else? And so that's back to me, how do you introduce them to the complexity, is by saying, well, ask them questions and also give examples. Here's four sort of types of acolytes you could be in Sharn. Any of those interest you? And so that sort of introduces the concept, well, as an acolyte, are you here to fight corruption or are you part of a corrupt, you know, uh, hierarchy? You know, and they might have never thought about, oh, just I'm an acolyte. And, you know, but okay, what's the, how is that connecting to the church? If you're a sage, why are you interested in knowledge? What are you trying to find out? So asking questions, but again, showing some of those things as examples can help people sort of figure out. Again, to me, it's all about this is like a movie, this is like a story. We want to make sure we understand what kind of characters would be in this story. So it flips back to saying, if this is the Western, you might be the sheriff or the preacher. If this is the down-and-out gang story, what kind of character, why would you be living in this incredibly poor part of town? And so again, for the wizard, why are you not up in some fancy wizard academy? Well, because, you know, I'm on the run from... Uh, from someone and I'm hiding out here, you know, or I'm a war uh, veteran with nowhere else to go because our nation's been destroyed. That's part of what I like about that series story of your people from the nation that's been destroyed is because that says, what do you do if your entire homeland has been wiped out? You've got good skills. You know how to use magic. What are you going to do with that? You've got to figure out, to me, another example of that actually is Firefly, is I look at Firefly and say, again, this is a story of people who have essentially lost what they had, have talents, and are just out in the world now trying to find a way to keep moving forward. And that's a story that, you know, you can say, is that you? Or the clifftop, you know, the clifftop starting point is presented to be more, you are professional adventurers. You are people who are going to get hired to do things. It just takes the twist of saying, so to be professional adventurers like this, what else have you done? Like, why are you known? Why are people hiring you to do things? And 
we don't have to do much, but you know, it's just a chance for you to come up with a story. What's the thing your character did that you're best known for? You know, and you're only third level or whatever. So, you know, trust me, you didn't kill a dragon, or if you did, it was a really small dragon. In fact, it might have been a large lizard. But the story <laughs> is that you killed a dragon. Um, and so, as I say, that's part of it to me is all back to that point of help the players draw themselves in and then help add the details, you know, like with religions, you don't necessarily have to present them all out front. Say, Cleric, tell me sort of how you see yourself. Well, that sounds like the silver flame. Now let me tell you a little more about that. Other questions? I don't know what time we're at yet. Do you have any other interesting these, these stories you talk about? Kind of like the toilet one. Oh, kind of like the toilet one. Um, let's see. As I said, what I like about that story in particular is that it sort of gave them an ongoing thing to work with. And what I like to do there is I like giving people attachment to a place. So once we've said, you're the sheriff, you know, you have an investment, we have our inn, we're going to be coming back here. So like the first adventure, they basically find this tomb that this miner has dug up, you know, sort of found their way into this tomb and there's an altar in the tomb where anyone you kill at the altar, uh, the person who does it sucks up their life energy and gets stronger, but that this basically will turn them into sort of a crazed Wendigo-like killer. Uh, so they deal with this, and they deal with the guy, but now part of the problem is this is this artifact-level thing that can't be destroyed, so now we have this dangerous thing right on the outskirts of our town. What do we do? And so it's part of that point of it's a problem that they solved the initial adventure. They beat the monster, but the problem isn't going away. And now they've got to think about, okay, we seal it up, but you know, it can come up again. You know, so I like these things that, again, in terms of world building, it's not that I just tell you here's a whole bunch of stuff. I'm going to introduce stuff that now is part of your world. We know we've got the crazy demon altar just outside of town. And we're going to try and put up a fence around it, you know, or something like that. It is also the case that the more you attach people to the area, and like in the same thing, uh, I think the second adventure, you know, I'm like, okay, you're hanging out in the bar. It is that open mic night. Each of you tell me one other person who's in the bar. You know, and I might start by saying, here's an interesting character. You know, you know part of actually what I did do in that session zero was say, here are four other important people in the town. You know, this is Thorn, and he buys shards. He's the rich guy. He's buying everybody's shards. This is the innkeeper. This is, uh, the, you know, the medic. And so I've sort of introduced these four people. Even there, I might say, but tell me something about, like, an argument you had with Thorn. You know, you're the sheriff. You know, the two of you don't get along. Why is that? You know, um, because, again, like casting a TV show. It's saying these are characters you're going to deal with in the future. I want you to feel like I can nail if I tell you why we had a fight, we had a fight over, you know, I was drunk and I hit him or whatever. Now that's a thing like in my brain, like I've made a piece of that story. But also in that second adventure I said, each of you just tell me someone in the bar. And the guy's like you know, one of them's like, oh there's this musician guy and he's just a complete pompous jerk. Or actually flipping back around the Calistan adventure, which is, again, the bad part of town, the second one there, I actually started by introducing a character and saying, we've got this homeless guy, and his name is Newsy, and he collects old newspapers and 
tells everybody about them as if it's news, even though he's just gathered old newspapers. He's always telling you stories about things that happened, you know, three weeks ago. Each of you tell me one encounter you've had with Newsy. And, you know, and they came up with stuff. So they're like, oh, the homeless wizard is like, oh, yeah, we camp out, you know, together. And the barbarian's like, I'm fascinated because I think everything he says is news. And, you know, I just sit there and listen to him forever. And so we did all this. And then basically over the course of the adventure, well, he gets basically kidnapped by a cult and turned into a monster and they have to kill him. But part of the point was because we'd stopped to say, who is this guy, that made the adventure, they were pissed when they sort of realized, oh, we've got to kill him. We're going to make whoever did this pay, because damn it, it's Newsy. And so, I mean, that's always a thing that whatever I'm doing, I try to work in. It doesn't work with everything. If it's just you're going into a dungeon to uh, to get, a, you know, the idol from the end of it, you know, you're not doing that type of thing. But when the, wherever there is opportunities, I always do like to find ways to let the players sort of have an investment in part also because it just gets them to picture it in their mind more clearly than if I just told you all the details myself. You know, I can tell you, you got into an argument with Newsy, but that's not going to have the same impact as if you tell me I got into an argument with Newsy because you've now thought about it. And even going to the classic dungeon crawl, I'll give you an example of uh, something I did, you know, for, you know, this is something we encourage in my role-playing game, Phoenix, is... I had an adventure that was the players have come to this uh, forest. The guardian spirit of the forest has been corrupted, and that is possessing animals and causing crazy, terrible things to happen. Uh, and this is a sort of, they've just got to find the source of the problem, deal with it. It's a straight up, not dungeon crawl because it's in a forest, but we are going to go kill a monster adventure. They get, as they're exploring, to this grove in the center of the forest, and I say, well, there's a statue here. This is the statue of the forest guardian spirit. But there's horrible things have been done here. You can see there's some kind of terrible ritual. There's body parts strewn around. The statue itself, something is terribly wrong with it. You know, you know this should be a friendly, positive spirit. Instead, what you see is that the lips of the idol have been sewn shut with vines. And there's something else about it that really disturbs you. What is that? And the point is first time I ran it, the player said, uh, one of the players volunteered and said, well, I think um, it doesn't have any eyes. Its eyes are missing. And so I said, great. And what I then did was I added in any of the creatures taken over by the forest spirit would gouge out their eyes. And like, this is so first off, it's like, ooh, this is a creepy, weird detail. And also the player suddenly is like, Whoa. you know, part of it is that horror is difficult because I don't know what frightens you. I may be frightened of spiders, but it turns out you don't care about spiders at all. And so when I throw my creepy field of spiders in, you're like, whatever. And so part of it is in that point by saying, what is it you think is creepy? And you're like, eyes. And I'm like, great. And they're clawing their eyes out. And he's like, ah. And so that didn't in any way change the story. I didn't have to change stats. I'm just like, mysteriously, they can see, even though they clawed their eyes out. You know, I didn't change the stats. I didn't change what I'd done. But I let the players put in just an element that again now made them feel like, you know, part of the point of role playing is if I'm watching a movie, you know, I don't have any say in it. I can't say, oh, I would have done that instead, or I'm not as scared of spiders as I am of ants, you know, whatever. As game masters, we have that power to say, but what is it that scares you? And how can I work that in? 
So I'm saying I'm just always looking for those moments. You don't have to completely redesign your story or adventure or things like that, but are there points where you can add details? Another sort of trivial example, but if I have players run into a mob of zombies, I'm going to say you're in a village. This mob of zombies comes charging towards you. It's a bunch of villagers. You can see there's an old woman who clearly has a broken leg, but she's just dragging herself forward. There's a butcher with a cleaver in one hand, and he's missing an arm. Now, each of you also tell me one zombie that stands out to you that catches your attention. And again, if someone says, there's a crazy clown, I might say, yeah, the circus isn't really in town. You know, are you sure it's a clown? Might it be a minstrel? You know, I mean, you don't want to just say no to anyone ever, but you can try and if they're just not engaged at all, redirect it to make sure we are engaging. But the point then is we're now not just thinking of zombies as a generic monster that is just a bunch of numbers for me to fight. I had to stop and think about well, what, what is a zombie? What, you know, oh, maybe it's a zombie child. That's creepy. You know what I mean? And then as I'm describing the fight, I'm going to work those details in. You know, you said it's the zombie child. Well, I roll and the zombie mob just attacks you and hits you for eight points. But I'm going to say that child like grabs onto your leg and is like climbing up your side and climbing into you. And it's just a way to make the whole experience a little more sort of visceral than simply a zombie attacks you. It rolls and does six points of damage. But the more that you can engage the players instead of simply being, let me tell you everything, the more that we're really getting, again, part of what makes role-playing unique is that it is something we can collaborate on as opposed to you just reading a novel or watching a show. we got about six more minutes. More questions? Um, it's a bit... Of a tangent, back mm -hmm. to the Eberron setting. Well, which is good, because theoretically we're talking yes. about Eberron. These people are probably like, why aren't we talking more about Eberron? <laughs> um, so, um, this is more about like the other continents surrounding Corvair. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, my current campaign is set in Zendrick. Right. And I actually took um, Tomb of Annihilation. Yeah, which is a good, it's a good yeah, match to Zendrick, like, for sure. it together. Yeah, I would, I would definitely either put Tomb of Annihilation in Zendrick or Kabara if I was keeping it on Corvair. So that's a good match. So go yeah. on. And um, the other continents, like, uh, you sort of left them open-ended. They're pretty much bare bones. So, so certainly in the Wayfinder's Guide, we didn't go into much detail because we didn't want to pile too much on. If you're curious about what does exist in canon... Uh, on the DMs Guild, you can get their source books on Zendrick, Serlona, Argonessen. At the same time, one of the points of Zendrick itself is to be very open-ended, is that Zendrick is this continent that it was once ruled by civilizations of giants that was laid low by a war with dragons. Massive sort of epic-level curses were laid on the land to such degree that time and space don't even quite work right. Like, you can't always get to the same place twice on the same road. So part of the point of that is to let us have, here's the lost city that no one's ever found before. You know, you're stumbling into a bizarre civilization that you haven't seen. And we basically, going back to the pulp adventure, we wanted a place where you can have that sense of untold discovery, finding ancient ruins that no one's touched before, in a way that on the main continent, where it's been inhabited by people for 3,000 years, why is there this, you know, lost city that no one's bumped into? You know, it's a little harder to do. So Zendrick is very definitely sort of set up to be that. It's got a very diverse range of environments. 
you can have people stumble onto things that either A, no one has found before, or B, once you leave, you might never find it again. And you can also have uh, sort of the issues of colonization, of, of, you know, the nations trying to get a, a stronger foothold here, or, you know, make a presence. So Zendrick was definitely sort of set with that open-endedness in mind to really give you the freedom to tell the stories you want to tell. Sardlona is basically a nation where what we wanted to say is as arcane magic is to Corvair, where arcane magic, the magic of wizardry and artificers, is the magic that sort of this civilization is built upon, Sardlona is a land where psionics is the power that they're built upon. And part of that is because in 3rd edition D&D and all the previous editions of D&D, psionic powers were a part of it. And we wanted to say basically this is here if that's something you want to embrace. And if you don't, it's the exotic land that, you know, again, the monk who has psychic-like abilities, well, that's probably where he learned them. You know, the shadow comes from having learned mysterious arts in a different land. If you want to go there, part of the point of Sarlona is to say that much of it is under the rule of the inspired. And so it's a place where you can have that sort of, we want to explore, you know, sort of Hunger Games rebellion, uh, you know, uprising against this established power. But also that there you have large areas, the, uh, the Sirkarn, the Tishana Tundra, that are, again, these mysterious, vast, sort of unexplored regions. And then Arganesson is the land of dragons, and part of the point in Eberron is we wanted to say, let's do something different with dragons. That dragons are ancient, you know, they can live for thousands of years. As they get older, they gain incredible magical powers, they're smarter than people, that why would they be sitting in caves just sitting on piles of gold? And so instead, we've sort of switched to say they are the oldest and most powerful civilization, but essentially they are so old and powerful that humanity is just sort of, we're just like animals to them. Uh, and they just sort of essentially either want nothing to do with us or they are manipulating us and sort of working in the shadows, pulling strings. So Arganesson is sort of intended as this is a land that low-level characters don't go to, but as epic-level characters, part of the point is that the dragons themselves are engaged in this sort of epic cold war with ancient demons. And that's part of the idea of saying, at low levels, you are dealing with terrorists, you're dealing with, you know, the Emerald Claw and the Queen of the Dead, you know, sort of smaller-scale things. As you get more powerful, you discover there is an ancient, much grander conflict that we just haven't been players on a significant enough scale to recognize. But now we can get involved in this bigger, higher-level conflict. And so it sort of exists as a, initially, this is just the place on the map that says, here there be dragons. But as you become more powerful enough to essentially to be relevant, uh, it's a place that you could explore. Does that make any sense? But again, a, a critical thing and a good point to sort of settle on is one of the points of Eberron was always to say, we want what exists to be a source of inspiration, not a source of limitation. And you should always feel that you can add things or change things. And so that's part of the point of not going into vast detail about Sharn in the Wayfinder's Guide. If you want more details, that Shrine City of Tower source book will give them to you and lots. But also don't be afraid to just make up a district and just say, ah, you're going to go to the garbage district and let me tell you about that. That 
you know, it's something that's there to inspire you, but you should always feel free, especially if you're not playing Adventures League or something like that. It's, you know, you can make it your own. You can add your explanation for morning. You can change, you know, anything you want to make it fit with what you or your players uh, want to do. Make sense? All right. Well, that sort of brings us uh, to the end of that. I'm not in a huge rush to leave or anything, so if you have any more questions, I'm happy to, since we don't have a thing coming right here, but uh, otherwise we can stop here. So, yeah. Anything else? All right. Well, thank you very much. I'm uh, glad to have met all of you. Uh, I will say my website is keith-baker.com, and I often write stuff about everyone there or answer questions. And, yeah. So thank you very much.